Hope all of you had a great and fabulous uh, Thanksgiving. Um, if you are just joining us today or uh, you've been with he- us here for the last few weeks, you know that we are in a series t- titled Acts, the Church that Jesus Builds. And the central theory in the book of Acts begins with Jesus' words uh, just before his ascension that he was going to have his uh, disciples be God's witnesses to the nations about his gospel, starting in Jerusalem. And so that's where everything builds and begins from, is God builds his church beginning at Jerusalem. And this t- today's message, I've titled it, the, the Prophets Have Spoken. And really, this is a sequel to last week's message. So um, we're going to be in Acts 3, 11 to, to 26. And just a heads up on that, if you want to turn to that chapter now. Uh, I'm going to be going through this a little more verse by verse today, because this is Peter uh, preaching this message. And Peter is someone who, uh, I've made mention of this before, but Peter's a powerful preacher. He's a guy that says a whole lot with few words. And so it's gonna, we're going to unpack everything that he's communicating today uh, in Acts 3, 11 to 26. So again, this is the sequel to last week's message. So if you missed last week's message, I'm just going to take a moment to set the stage for where we are going today. Uh, last week, Pastor Simon shared with us how the gospel transforms lives. And he was preaching through Acts 3, 1 to 10 about the story of a man who had been crippled his whole life. He'd been crippled from the time he was born. And in order for him to survive, uh, he was placed at the temple in Jerusalem on a daily basis. That's what the text tells us. He's put there to beg people for money just so he could survive. And then one day, which probably to him started out as just any other ordinary day, he is brought to the temple, he's, he's placed there, he's, he's begging for money, and he has an encounter with two men at the, ta- or at the temple who would end up changing the whole trajectory of his life. And these two men were the apostles Peter and John, Jesus' disciples. And what ends up happening is that Peter and John go into the temple where they see the lame man begging for money, just as he always does. Again, it's just another regular day on the calendar for this guy. And Peter and John get the man's attention. They go over in his direction, and they, they get this man to look at him. It says that they, they, uh, they gaze at one another. And, and Peter says this, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And what happened? We saw the man was instantly healed. He got up and he immediately began leaping around and walking around, praising God in the temple grounds in front of all these people. And the people were filled with wonder and awe and amazement at what happened to him. And I would just say that the crowd's reaction to this man's healing was an ordinary reaction to an extraordinary event. 
It was an ordinary reaction to an extraordinary event. When something big and significant happens, when something seems wonderful and amazing, people want an explanation. How did this happen? Tell me. Explain this. I don't get it, right? And this crowd is no difference. It's normal human behavior. And so today's passage we're going to be looking at in just a moment is Peter's answer to the question that's really written all over their faces, but they're too paralyzed to ask. And if they did ask it, it's not recorded there in the text. So today's passage is Peter's response. It's his answer to his fellow Jews at the temple about how this man got healed. And Peter's response is is done in the form of a sermon. And it's his second sermon now in the book of Acts. Uh, If you remember, Peter's first sermon in the book of Acts was to explain the coming of the Holy Spirit and to explain the supernatural speaking in tongues that happened. And in his second sermon, which we're going to look at here in a moment, he also is explaining another supernatural event, and it's this healing. It's this healing of this lame beggar at the temple. So the purpose of both of Peter's sermons here in Acts is to explain these supernatural events that are happening amongst God's people. And if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it to Acts 3, uh, verse 11. I'm going to read the first two verses there. They're also going to be up on your screen uh, in front of you as we move uh, through this message. But in Acts 3, 11 and 12, this just sets the scene real quick. Again, this is a sequel to last week's message, just continuation. Verse 11, while he, in other words, the healed man, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. This is on the temple grounds. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety? We have made this man walk, that we have made him walk. So what Peter wants everyone to know here is that it wasn't him or his buddy John who healed this lame beggar. Neither Peter nor John can take any credit for the lame man's healing. They're saying, hey, we don't have any power within ourselves to make this man well. They also don't have enough goodness in them to win God's favor in order to heal the man. Peter explains that the the power for the lame man's healing, it comes from Jesus. He claims that it's Jesus of Nazareth who is the one who made the lame man well. And so this Jesus, Peter is claiming here and telling his fellow Jews about, he's, he's saying, hey, this is no, Jesus is no ordinary fellow. He's no like country boy from the region of Galilee. And as we go through this sermon, Peter is going to preach that Jesus is the Jews' Messiah. You could say, if you want to take away from today about what is this message all about in a big umbrella over, you know, uh, title, you could say that this is Peter's version of the case for Christ. As he builds his case on the only Bible he had at the time, the Old Testament scriptures. 
So he, he's going to claim that the whole Old Testament scriptures points to the coming of Jesus. How the prophets of God prophesied of him, and those prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus. Look down at the next two verses, uh, or a few verses, verses 13 to 15. I'm going to read through these and then talk about them. So he says this to his fellow Jews at the temple, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. So Peter begins his explanation for the lame man's healing by saying that the power behind the lame beggar's healing was the glorified Christ. So the first thing Peter wants his fellow Jews to understand is he builds his case for Christ. He wants them to understand that Jesus was a servant of God who was glorified by God. In other words, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of Israel, whose covenant name is Yahweh, he's the one who glorified his servant Jesus. And let me just take a couple of minutes to unpack what God glorifying his servant Jesus means. You see, the Jews fully understood and agreed that the one true God, yeah, we get it, he alone is worthy of glory, but for God himself to give glory, to glorify another, that's eye-opening. Because only God alone is worthy of glory. The Gospel of John, more than any other New Testament book, points to the Father glorifying Jesus and Jesus glorifying the Father. A good example of this can be seen in Jesus' words right after the Last Supper in the Gospel of John, when when he and his disciples are, are heading out from the upper room, heading to the Garden of Gethsemane. And John writes this in John 13, 31, 32. He says, when he, being Jesus, had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. And what Jesus is speaking there is he's speaking to his disciples about his coming death and resurrection. In those verses, I don't know if you noticed, but there's this reciprocal giving and receiving of glory between Jesus and the Father. That it's through Jesus' suffering, his death, and his resurrection that he would bring God glory. And God, in return, would give glory to his unique son, Jesus. Another verse in John which shows Jesus being glorified, which is tied to his death and resurrection, is John 12, 16. It says his disciples did not understand these things at first, all the things Jesus was telling them about his death and resurrection and the necessity of it. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So to tie this all back to the opening of Peter's 
case for Christ here. When Peter is proclaiming that the God of Israel's covenants glorified his servant Jesus, he's making the case to his fellow Jews that God gave glory to Jesus in the sense that Jesus shares the same glory as the Father on account of his death and resurrection. So the bottom line, Peter says, is that Jesus is glorified by God because of his death and resurrection. But the second part of that to break down, so God glorifies his servant Jesus because of death and resurrection, but Peter also says, not only, God has, not only has God done that, not only has he glorified Jesus, but he's saying Jesus is God's servant. And he's God's servant in the sense that Jesus is God's appointed Messiah for Israel. And, and Peter essentially says this. He's like, if you want more evidence of this, of that claim that I'm putting forward to you, the prophets have spoken, uh, particularly the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12. I, I don't have time to read through that today just because of the time we have. If you want to write that down in your notes and go back and read it later, uh, that'd be great. Um, but Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12, all of that speaks of a suffering servant approved by God who after his suffering and death would be glorified by God. He would be praised by God. He would be exalted by God. And when you read through that prophecy in Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12, you'll see that the Messiah's suffering, that would come before his glorification. The Messiah would suffer, then be glorified. Which to the Jews at the temple at at that day, And even in Jesus' ministry, when you read through the Gospels, that was all backwards thinking. That's just backwards. That's not what we have been taught. We haven't known that. To them, the Messiah should not suffer and die. He was supposed to come in glory and come in glory right away. And to prove Peter's point that the Messiah's suffering would come before glory, Peter has to jog people's memory of the recent events of the life of Christ, which had just happened right around them. And there's a reason that he recaps Jerusalem's news headlines from yesterday's news, um, which I'm going to explain here with these verses. Uh, In in verse 13, if you notice, Peter, he begins recapping yesterday's news in Jerusalem by reminding his audience that Jesus of Nazareth was delivered over to the Roman governor, Pilate, and that Pilate found no guilt in him. In other words, Jesus did nothing deserving of death, but the mob at Jesus' trial rejected Jesus. Instead, mob justice won out at Jesus' trial, and Pilate ended up releasing Barabbas, the murderer the Jews had asked him to release. So here you have the life of an innocent, righteous man that was exchanged for a a, a guilty, unrighteous man. And then Jesus is handed over to the Roman execution squad where he's killed on the cross. But of course, the grave could not hold Jesus as God raised up Jesus from the dead. And Peter says, hey, me and John here, we were witnesses to all of this. We were witnesses to his suffering, and we saw him after his resurrection. 
eyewitness testimony. And, and Peter's testimony here is not just, again, the testimony here is that Jesus is not just any country boy from Nazareth. His testimony is about God's Messiah. And here's the twist that Peter throws in for his evidentiary claims about the Messiah. He's saying, hey, guys, the Messiah is both human and divine. The Messiah is both human and divine. Starting in verse 14 there, he, Peter uses three titles for Jesus. And these titles would speak to Jesus being the, the human Messiah that Israel longed for, as well as titles that are used specifically of God. So Peter is uh, proclaiming that Jesus is the longed hope for Jewish Messiah, as well as God, by the way he uses these titles. That's what these titles communicate. And the first title that Peter gives Jesus is the Holy One. The Holy One. The title, the Holy One, is used both as a messianic title and a title for God. Peter seems to have used uh, this term in a messianic sense back in the Gospel of John, in John 6, 69, and he says to Jesus, he says, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 43, 15, God himself is also referred to as the Holy One, where it says this, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Now, the second title Peter gives Jesus is the Righteous One. The title, the Righteous One, is also used as a title for the Messiah and for God. In Isaiah 53, 11, it shows the Messiah being the servant of God, and it says that this servant is a righteous person. Isaiah prophesies God's Messiah would suffer and die, that he would bear the sins of the people, but that the beautiful thing is his righteousness could lead others to righteousness. That's exactly what it says here in Isaiah 53, 11. It says this, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. No other human being is without sin except for Jesus. There was no guilt found in Jesus. Uh, some Jews today try to explain uh, the servant passage in Isaiah 53 is not being an individual person, uh, that the servant is the nation of Israel. But that begs a question, how can an unrighteous uh, nation or even an unrighteous person make others to be righteous? They can't. Only the righteousness of God can make people righteous because only God is righteous. And just as righteousness was described of the Messiah, of God's servant, it is also an attribute of God. Righteousness is God's very character. Psalm 37, 7 says, The Lord 
is righteousness, or the Lord is righteous. So the third title, he said the Lord is holy, he's the holy one, he's the righteous one, and then he gives this other title to Jesus, Peter gives this other title to Jesus, and he calls him the author of life. Certainly Peter's listeners understood there being one God who created the world, but to give this title to Jesus? In the New Testament, Jesus is the one credited for creating the world and giving people eternal life. I love this verse about Christ in John 1, 3 to 4. It says this about him. It says, all things, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. So God is, or Jesus is not only the author of all life, he's the author of eternal life. He's of salvation, the life that was the light of men. So Peter gives Jesus three titles to recap. He's the holy one, he's the righteous one, he's the author of life. All these titles reflect attributes of deity which Jesus possessed. Again, he's no ordinary man. And his name, as Peter talks about here in verse 15, his his name has power behind it. Just like when you call upon God himself, faith in the name of Jesus is what completely healed the lame beggar at the temple. Let's read Acts 3.16. Peter describes this a little bit more. And his name, in other words, Jesus' name, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And so what Peter is saying here about faith is that it is synonymous with belief. It's synonymous with trusting in. For someone to trust in the name of Jesus means to say that you are trusting in all of who Jesus is. It's to trust in what he says is true. It's to trust in what he did for you. Now, I think that the lame man was truly saved by his faith in Jesus because of the lame man's reaction to his healing. It says that he was uh, leaping around and praising God and Then he clings to Peter and John like he's thanking them. He's just so happy. And Luke is the author of the book of Acts. He's also uh, the author of the Gospel of Luke. And so when you read through the Gospel of Luke, people who came to a moment of true saving faith in Christ who truly believed in him, they all responded in joy and praising God for what he had done with him. It's like a familiar refrain through the entire Gospel of Luke. Which, by the way, that that is the natural response to God's salvation. It should lead to joy. Salvation should lead to joy. And when Jesus performed miracles in the Gospels, one of the main points of performing miracles was to show the people, hey guys, the Messiah has come. I'm the Messiah. Look Look at the evidence. And the prophets declared that when the Messiah came, there would be miracles done amongst the people. One example uh, is from Isaiah 35, which describes 
what the times of the Messiah would look like. Isaiah 35, 5-6 puts it like this. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. What I find interesting about that prophecy in Jesus' ministry is that those are some of the miracles that Jesus performed in his earthly ministry before the cross. But you saw there, it says, then shall the lame man leap like a deer. Isn't that what happened with the beggar? In the presence of all the people at the temple? And isn't that after the cross? After the resurrection? After the ascension of Christ? So what's the point? Why point that out? Well, the point here is that the resurrected Christ's power is still at work who, by, through by God's grace, is still drawing people to himself, carrying on his ministry through his appointed apostles, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember Peter and John, they were just ordinary fellows, just fishing buddies from Galilee. The power displayed through them is the power of Christ being worked out through them by the power of his Holy Spirit. So the whole miracle is done in order to show the Jews, hey, Jesus is alive. He is still at work. He is still bringing people to salvation. He's still trying to let you know the Messiah is available to you. The power of God Jesus demonstrated to his fellow Jews and through his apostles is done to bring people to a point of critical decision. It's to bring them to a point of critical decision. And that decision is faith. Jesus' miracles, or Jesus performed miracles to bring people to faith in him. And that is what Peter and John are also doing. The miracle is designed to lead these people to a critical decision that they need to make. And the question is, will you believe Jesus is who he said he is, or are you going to reject him? This is now the, the underlying question that the audience is faced with. And it's not a question just for the first century people at the temple that day. It's also the question that all people, people today, maybe some people who are in this room, it is the question that all people are faced with. Acts 3, 17 to 18. And now, brothers, Peter says, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So the previous part that we've been walking through, the previous part of Peter's sermon had been recapping yesterday's news to the Jews who were at the temple that day. And these verses right here are showing why Peter had to remind them of who Jesus was. He, had, he was trying to convict them of their having rejected Jesus. 
Peter wanted his fellow Jews to understand that they had a part in killing their long-awaited Messiah. But Peter doesn't just leave them hanging on that. Peter says something here that leaves them with hope, that leaves them with the opportunity to get right with God, that their guilt is not yet removed. Their guilt is not yet removed, uh, but because they acted in ignorance, it leaves open the possibility they can be forgiven and made right with God. They acted in ignorance means that they didn't fully get it. They didn't fully understand who Jesus was. They didn't fully understand that the Messiah was to suffer and die, nor did they understand fully that the Messiah would be God in the flesh, the true Son of God. And neither did the Romans, by the way. When Peter speaks of the rulers acting in ignorance, those rulers would have been both the uh, Jewish religious leaders as well as the, the Romans, the Roman leaders as well, because the Romans were ruling over the Jews at that time. So when Jesus, when Jesus was on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing, he's talking about all those implicated in his death, both the Jews and the Romans. Both the Jews and the Romans operated on some level with ignorance about who Jesus really was. But it wasn't just because of the Jews and the Romans that Jesus went to the cross. Peter says that the Messiah's suffering was all part of God's plan, which he spoke through the prophets of Israel. All of Isaiah 53 and parts of Psalm 22, if you want to like think of two primary places in the Bible where it speaks of uh, the Messiah coming to suffer, go to, those, uh, go to those chapters in those books. Because both of them speak of the Messiah's suffering that was fulfilled in Jesus. But I'll just share a few verses that will help make the connection between Jesus' suffering and the prophecies written about him. Isaiah 53.5 says this about the suffering servant. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Isaiah 53, 9 says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Jesus was buried in the grave of a rich man. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Psalm 22, 16 to 18, written by, the, written by David, King David. For dogs encompass me, a company of, evil company of evildoers encircles me, they have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. None of Jesus' bones were broken. Miraculously, uh, all the others, or his weren't, but others were. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But the Bible is very clear about why Jesus had to go to the cross. He went to the cross to pay the price for your sin. It is your sin and mine that brought Jesus to the cross. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, and God's consequence for sin is death. Because of sin, human beings are utterly incapable of saving themselves. 
Human beings, uh, because of sin, are forever under the wrath of God because of our rebellion against God, unless, unless, out of God's love and grace, he provides a way for us to be made right with him, to be in right relationship with him again. And Jesus is the only one God has provided for man to be made right for him, or be, to be made right with God. 1 John 4.10, in this is love, this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. God makes the first move and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice or propitiation, depending on your Bible translation, for our sins. So you see that only a perfect sacrifice for God can completely remove the stain of sin and satisfy a perfectly holy God. And if someone recognizes they have sinned against God and they understand that God sent Jesus to be the savior of their sins and they want to be made right with God, what do they do? If a person is convinced about what Jesus has done for them and they believe by faith that everything about Jesus is true, what do you do? And Peter says, repent and turn back to Jesus. That's what he claims here in verse 19. Look at verse 19. He says, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. What he means by repent here, it's, it's to turn around. It's to change your mind. It's to change your thinking about the way you are going in life, the way that you're thinking about who Jesus is. So Peter is basically saying to his fellow Jews that, you know, guys, you've been thinking wrongly about Jesus, and you need to change your thinking about him. Not only do they need to change their thinking about him, you need to come back to him. You need to follow him. You need to love him. That's what he means by turn back. So in other words, stop going the direction that you are going in life. Turn around. Come back to Jesus. Follow him. Embrace who he is and what he has done for you. And at that moment of true faith and repentance, they receive amazing promises. And he's going to give them three promises. The first one is right here uh, that he said in verse 19, which is that their sins would be blotted out. And what he means by that is that their sins would be completely erased. Whatever sins you might think you have or know that you have, under your name on God's chalkboard, all those sins get completely erased by God. So faith in Jesus leads to repentance, which leads to forgiveness of sin. Those are the two promises made for these Jews who turn to Jesus on the basis of faith and repentance. And he says that those, uh, these two promises that we're going to read about right here in just a second, that these promises are... He calls them times of refreshing and then participation in Christ's kingdom at his second coming. Read Acts 3, 20 to 21 with me. Here are the blessings, the other two promises. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. 
Now, it's not crystal clear to me on what the times of refreshing here and the sending of uh, Christ is speaking about. That could be speaking of the refreshment in our hearts that believers receive when they put their faith in Jesus, when he gives them his Holy Spirit. Or it could be a reference to the kingdom that Jesus ushers in at his second coming when he sets up his kingdom on the earth. Either could be true, true at the same time. But make no mistake, the promises from God's word is that Jesus is going to come again. And when he comes again, he will restore all things. Peter says that the prophets have spoken not only about Jesus' first coming, but his second coming as well. Just as Jesus fulfilled God's word in his first coming, he will fulfill God's word in his second coming too. And what does God say about his word? Isaiah 40 verse 8 says that the grass wither, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So despite this wonderful news that Peter has shared with his fellow Jews, he he also gives them a really stern warning. But the warning is not from himself. Uh, It comes from Moses, one of the most revered men in Israel's history. Peter cites Moses. Uh, Look at the next two verses, 22 to 24. Moses said, he's like, pay attention, guys. Moses had this to say about the coming of Christ. He says, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be, here's the warning, it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And so Peter, citing Moses, is like saying, hey, Moses is not in contradiction to Christ like a lot of you think. Moses is pointing to Jesus. He wants you to be looking for him and and listening to him. And he tells the Jews at the temple that Moses prophesied about the coming of Christ. And Peter, as you heard, there's a warning here. If you do not listen to Jesus, if you do not obey Jesus, if you do not repent and change your thinking about Jesus, if you decide not to put your faith in Jesus, guys, you're going to be cut off. You're going to die in your sins. You will be cut off from fully participating in all the promises of God that you have wanted. You will not be part of the people of God. You will not have a place in the kingdom of God. And so what he's saying, simply, to reject Jesus is to lose everything. To reject Jesus is to lose everything. Rejecting Jesus is a very, very serious thing. As if citing the prophecy of Moses is not enough for Peter's audience. He says that all the prophets after Moses speak of Jesus. When it says all of these days, it means that all the prophets from Samuel on down prophesied of Jesus' first coming, his suffering, his glorification. And they pointed to his second coming as well when he comes to rule and reign in righteousness. And, and Peter says that if the Jews listen to the warning, if they change their thinking, if they trust God's word of what the prophets have spoken to them, there's blessing. They will be blessed. Obedience, 
leads to blessing by God. Let's look at the last two verses. 25 to 26. Peter says, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So not only has Peter's case for Christ used the evidence of the Old Testament prophets, of Moses, and now he uses Abraham. And I hope that you see what Peter is essentially claiming here, which is that God's plan for the nations runs through Israel. It runs through a particular person that comes through the line of Abraham, which is Jesus. God's blessing to all the families of the world, to all the people on earth, comes through one of Abraham's descendants, and that blessing is Jesus. God's promise to Abraham was that he would bring about one individual at the right moment in time who would be a blessing to those who receive him. And in the Gospel of Acts, the opportunity to be blessed by Jesus, it states that it first comes to the Jews. As Paul says in Romans 1.16, I think this was our verse of the month last month, or maybe it was two months ago. But it says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's Paul writing. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why is the gospel to the Jews first? I like how Warren Wiersbe answered that in his commentary on on Acts that I was looking through. And, And he says that, The Jews were God's chosen instrument through whom the Gentiles would be blessed. And if you think about it, that was true in the Old Testament and it was true in the New Testament. That's where Jesus started from, in Jerusalem, with his fellow Jewish disciples who went forward throughout the world preaching his gospel. But the blessing, just to conclude here, The blessing that Peter claimed was for the Jews is also for the Gentiles. The blessing that Jesus offers you is that he saves you from your sins. That's what he came into this world for 2,000 years ago. What Peter has preached to his fellow Jews is also true for us, which is that faith and repentance leads to blessing. Faith and repentance leads to blessing. When you put your faith in Jesus, when you trust in all of who Jesus is and what he has done for you, and you repent of your sins, and you choose to come back to him, you choose to follow him, all of your sins are erased and you receive the blessing of eternal life. You are made right with God. You receive his righteousness. Hope, to bring it back to where we started with Advent, hope is not far off. It is not out of reach. Hope is not impossible. Hope has come. It is a reality. And hope is knowing Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, what a 
wonderful time of the year to just be teaching on this passage to, as it just points out, in so many different ways, uh, your coming and how from long ago uh, you were making a way to uh, cleanse people from their sins and it all comes by faith in you. There's nothing in ourselves. There's no power within us that can make ourselves well or get other people well. It all comes through you, Lord. And I just pray that uh, we would walk by faith, that we would um, proclaim this truth with others. And pray, Lord, that if anyone here is not um, in that saving relationship with you, I pray that they would understand that uh, faith in you and repentance leads to blessing, and that blessing is eternal life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.